0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Thank
1: you. Uh, and so, what I thought I would do today is talk a little bit about the book um, at a more foundational level, I guess, if you want to think about it that way. And I should very quickly preface my remarks by saying many of you have also heard me talk about the things that I'm going to say today many times um, because I'm constantly harping on these themes but they're there you can't harp on them enough Um, that's really what I think it's not just that I like hearing myself say the same words over and over again and so uh, I thought that's what I would discuss so very quickly for those who may not be familiar WTF searches for the sense in humanity's seemingly most senseless social practices. And its central argument is that it's actually quite simple to find the the hidden sense in seemingly senseless social practices. All you have to do is two things that are closely related. Think in terms of constraints and think in terms of incentives. I view those two things, which as I say are very closely connected, as the cornerstones for the analysis that's provided in WTF and I want to suggest to you, ought to be the cornerstones for the way that we think about human behavior more generally. The cases that WTF considers are sort of, you might think about them as kind of test cases. Cases where it seems like this sort of reasoning would be the least likely to apply. The idea being that if I can show you that it works in these environments, then hopefully you'll be persuaded that it can be used in much easier, so to speak, cases or environments to explain social practices that humans engage in that are perhaps not quite so bizarre, at least on the surface. So constraints, which is where I'm going to start, constraints are simply factors that limit our choices. And thinking in terms of constraints simply means thinking about in a given situation what is possible and what is not possible. It's really that basic. with apologies to Pete a bit for the story that's about to come. My first semester, maybe it was my first year in graduate school, at least for part of it, I commuted from the low-income housing unit in which I lived to campus and other places that I needed to go, like getting groceries, with a public bus. I think it still runs. It's called the Q-Bus. Does it still run? At the time, at least, um, the Q-Bus ran very infrequently, at least it picked up very infrequently at the stop that was in front of where I lived. Campus was not nearly as large as it was, so I presume that there were, there were far fewer of them. And it was extremely inconvenient for me to basically travel anywhere, including getting to campus. Um, one of the ways that this became most apparent was that Pete at the time, who, who, was my, who I was working for, he was, I was assigned to him as his research assistant, which was wonderful in many respects, and uh, one of them is that I got to know early on as a graduate student sort of what the delights of manual labor are. Um, and so Pete would have me haul mattresses up, up to the upstairs of his house and uh, I'm, not making, I'm not making this up. I put together a uh, a constructed a desk with his son uh, which was interesting and then actually the leg fell off and Pete called me up at like three in the morning yelling at me about it which was fun too. Uh, Chris and I actually put together Pete's grill at the time in any event. The, the rele- this will become relevant in a moment. So. One day, you know, I was just sort of really upset, and I happened to notice that there was this beaten-up hunk of junk, it was super old at the time. I didn't know the year. Later, found out it was a 1982 Honda Civic um, that was parked in the in somebody owned it in in the apartment building that I lived in, and it had a for sale sign on it. So I think it, I think the guy was asking for five hundred dollars. The car had like two hundred and some thousand miles on it. Uh, it was clearly a a death trap. And, uh, but I thought of it as, you know, my new death trap that would be excellent for me to have so I could substitute for the Q-Bus. And, um, you know, with a couple hundred dollars of mine and actually several hundred more from Pete gave me money out of his own pocket, although perhaps for self-interested reasons, uh, as that's the connection back to what I was talking about before, uh, I actually managed to buy the car. And so I got the car and I don't know, Pete, maybe you remember, the, the car lasted a few months, three or four months maybe, uh, at which point it promptly broke down. Uh, the clutch gave out when I was driving down the highway and I almost died. Um, but I did manage to roll that puppy right up on up into, into Fairfax and I promptly then parked it in front of Pete's house where it, was, it couldn't couldn't be moved. Uh, and I told Pete, you know, uh, Anglor, which was the car I gave the I named the car Anglor because it didn't have power steering. I'm not very strong And so when I would try and you know if you've ever driven a car without power steering, when when the car decelerates substantially, the wheel becomes very hard to turn. So I'd be pulling when I would try and park it into spots, it would park at like a 45 degree angle because I wasn't strong enough to straighten out the wheel. Anyway, I'm like Anglor has died, Um, and that was that was the end of the car. Uh, It sat there for I think a couple months before probably either Rosemary Pete's wife or his neighbors complained about the garbage (laughs) car that was left in front of his house. At which point we had it, uh, we had it towed away to a junkyard. Now, why do I tell you all this? Um, if you didn't know anything about my income at the time, which was about, I think maybe five thousand dollars. I think is that what? what, what I don't remember. People might remember, but maybe about five thousand dollars. You would think that my choice of Anglor, of a death trap for an automobile, was stupid. If you didn't know anything about my income, it would look completely idiotic. Why wouldn't I buy a car that wasn't a death trap? Hell, why wouldn't I buy a Bentley? If an alien came and visited likewise from a, another planet somewhere, a planet that enjoyed super abundance, he too would observe my behavior and not being familiar with the idea of income constraints would think that my behavior looked idiotic. But of course, we all know he would be wrong. Just like anybody else would be wrong if they concluded that, they would just be ignorant of my income constraint, which is what they were ignoring. A Bentley wasn't possible for me at the time, but a 1982 Honda Civic with 200,000 miles on it was. This is an extraordinarily simple, obviously, and basic concept, this idea of, of constraints and recognizing the importance of understanding what the constraints are to evaluating the sensibility of a given behavior. However, oftentimes, economists even, fail, I think, to fully understand the implications of constraints, or at least to consistently think in terms of what is possible and what is not when performing various evaluations. The difficulty essentially seems to be that when we Observe a particular form of social organization, of human behavior, in some environment that's remote to us, that is somehow foreign or unfamiliar, it becomes harder and harder for us to see what the operative constraints in that environment are. Sort of like, a bit like being like the alien from the other planet. And instead of, in the face of such a scenario, searching harder for the constraints that we know have to be there, because scarcity, is omnipresent, what often happens is that the evaluators begin to at least implicitly pretend that there aren't any constraints at all and that immediately leads to faulty conclusions. To illustrate this I want to give very briefly one example from the book um, which is about the practice of trial by poison ingestion in contemporary Liberia. In contemporary, in rural contemporary Liberia at least, uh, if you are accused of a crime and there is no obvious evidence of whether or not you've committed it, what they do is they ask you to undergo what is called an ordeal called sassy wood, and that's this trial by poison ingestion. The reason it's called sassy wood is that the poison that the criminal defendant is asked to drink is made from the bark of a sasswood tree, which is in fact toxic. Uh, and so. If you're committed of the crime, you're invited to imbibe the the poisonous concoction, which is mixed up by a a, a sort of spiritual leader, a kind of shaman-slash-witch doctor in the community of sorts. Um, And the idea is that the witch doctor has the power of magic that, together with the bark of this poisonous tree, creates a magical spirit inside the draft, such that when a criminal defendant drinks it, it inspects the state of his soul and is able to report reliably on whether or not the defendant is telling the truth and the idea is that if you are guilty the spirits way of communicating that to everybody uh, to the shaman in particular is to remain inside to cause you serious physical harm perhaps even to cause you to die and if you're innocent the potions way of the magical spirits way of communicating communicating that to the court is by ejecting itself from your body causing you to vomit um, leaving you more or less unharmed, and as a result, you're exonerated. So, if you don't know anything about the constraints that rural Liberians face, the practice of sassywood would of trial by poison ingestion, appears obviously stupid. And in fact, that is the perspective that has been taken overwhelmingly by the international community, which sees it as nonsensical and moreover barbaric and is working to stamp out the practice in Liberia uh, if at all possible. It's possible that it's nonsensical and perhaps it is also barbaric. But before coming to that conclusion, it might be useful to first ask yourself the question, well why is it that rural Liberians are using this trial by poison ingestion instead of the obviously sensible way of adjudicating uh, criminal case of administering criminal justice for instance the way that we do in the Western world by first having public police gather evidence for example and then having e- either a public inquisitor judge or perhaps a fact finding jury help lead us to some determination on the evidence and therein determining determining the guilt or innocence of the accused. One possibility as I suggested a second ago is that rural Iberians are in fact senseless. Um, another possibility is that they just like trial by poison ingestion. They just enjoy brutal things. They're just inherently brutal, brutal people. A third possibility, and the one that I suggest in the book, um, because I think it's right, is that in fact rural librarians confront a particular constraint that we've overlooked that makes it not possible for them to resort to the ordinary means of administering criminal justice in these particular cases. And, in fact, if you do a little bit of research into rural Liberia, or Liberia more generally, you'll find that that's precisely what the case is. I don't know how much you know about the history of Liberia, but they they had a civil war not terribly long ago, which helped to exacerbate the situation. The situation being that public institutions there are utterly dysfunctional and corrupt. It turns out that in rural Liberia, public courts, for the most part, don't exist at all. So. Does this constraint automatically tell us that sassy wood is a sensible means of administering criminal justice in rural Liberia? By itself, no. Trial by poison ingestion is one thing that we know is possible, but there are other things that are possible too, so we don't know that it's the best thing. What we do learn from just recognition of this constraint, however, is the fact that we can definitely not conclude that rural Liberians are senseless simply because they do not use traditional governmental means of administering criminal justice. Why does this matter? Well, imagine for a moment, and this is a a point I'm going to return to in a moment, but just go with this for a second. Suppose for a minute that trial by poison ingestion was able to produce at least some very small level of criminal justice. Okay, imagine that it did that. If interveners had their way in rural Liberia, and they were able to stamp out the practice of Sassywood, what would the result be for criminal justice in rural Liberia? Not good. We would go from a very low level of criminal justice, by assumption here being supplied through Sassywood, to no criminal justice at all. Only if you fail to recognize the constraint that rural Liberians in fact face is it not immediately obvious. Once it's pointed out that it in fact is not in the possibility set to rely, at least for the moment, on public institutions of criminal justice. The question, and thus our evaluation, about whether or not Sassy Wood would make sense, whether or not it might be desirable or not, changes rather significantly. Moving on to the importance of thinking in terms of incentive. So a minute ago, I suggested that trial by poison ingestion, in fact, is capable of producing at least a low level of criminal justice in rural Liberia. Um, I'm going to discuss about why that is and the key to understanding why that is as I know again some of you have heard me talk about before is thinking in terms of incentives incentives are simply relative costs and benefits and a critically important thing that I think is overlooked by many is that social practices that people engage in not only reflect their behaviors but also affect their behaviors. They do so by affecting relative costs and benefits, by affecting people's incentives. If you ignore the incentive effects of social practices, just like if you ignore constraints, you are inevitably going to end up describing behavior that is in fact sensible as idiotic. There's no other way for it than it to appear so to you. Return to my car example for a second. So, Anglor didn't have much market value, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, but it had a lot of value to me. It was my only way of getting around outside of the Q bus. And so, I followed the social practice that everybody else follows with respect to their automobile, even though my car was a hunk of junk. And that was, when I exited it, I would take the keys out of the ignition and lock the door. Everybody does this, as I say. Now, why do we do that? We do that because it affects the incentive for criminal behavior by raising the relative cost of our car being stolen we reduce the prospect of our car being stolen by reducing the incentive for the thief to take our car very basic note however that if you ignored that incentive effect of the social practice that we would follow that we do in fact follow taking the car, taking the keys out and locking the door that practice would appear to be idiotic it would be all cost making it more inconvenient for you and no benefit Very, very simple. As simple as constraints, as I mentioned before. And yet, here too again, oftentimes when the environment in question, when the social practice in question, becomes more foreign to us, we stop thinking in these terms. So, very quickly, since I know you've all have heard this before, because of the belief that rural Liberians have in the magical spirit being able to inspect the state of their soul and determine whether or not they're guilty or not, reliably. the incentives, the relative cost of undergoing the ordeal versus declining it are different for a guilty person versus an innocent one, which in turn causes them to choose differently and in making a different choice, revealing something about their guilt or in, uh, their guilt or innocence, their private information, to the judicial system. In order to see the sense, the full sense in Sassywood, you have to think in terms of these incentives. If you don't, Sassy Wood, even if it's a constrained institution, is not an optimal institution because there's no reason to think that it's functional. Why does this matter? Well, suppose that you are committed to the proposition that trial by poison ingestion, per se, is just barbaric and we don't want to have barbaric things. And so put your intervener hat back on if you had it on to begin with. You probably didn't since you're in this room, but that's okay. Um, When it comes to evaluating whether or not we want to stamp out the practice, surely it's relevant to us, even if we think it's barbaric and that barbaric things are inherently bad, that in fact the practice works to some extent. That ought to enter our our calculation about whether or not we want to have it or not. How can you condemn the practice without any information about its functionality? But how can you understand its functionality if it has it or not if you don't first reason in terms of incentives? Understand that the practice isn't just a cultural exogenously given cultural phenomena, but an endogenous response that in turn generates incentives for behaviors of of different types. That's really all I have to say. I simply want to emphasize my final words the idea that ultimately if you ignore constraints in any given case or you ignore incentive effects you are essentially preconceiving a conclusion that or predetermining a conclusion for the behavior that you're observing to be nonsensical in some way to be idiotic that doesn't make it idiotic in fact the only idiotic thing that's happening there is your refusal to acknowledge features of reality <laughs> constraints and incentives so if we ever want to see the sense in senseless, seemingly senseless behavior, any behavior, we have to consistently and persistently think in terms of these two things, without which the entire world, more or less, all human behavior, will appear to be nonsensical.
2: Uh, Thanks, Pete. Hi, everyone. Uh, First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and be able to talk about Pete's new book. First off, uh, Pete has written a really marvelous witty and insightful book and if you haven't read it yet for whatever reason I'm envious of you and I urge you to do it as soon as possible it's a book on the origins of social practices Um, and you know uh, unlike probably most of the readers of this book I actually did not have uh, the reaction that is predicted by the books cover and the title but simply because I had actually read Pete's work before I read the book. So I had that reaction sort of preemptively in advance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason I'm I'm saying that is I want to emphasize that this book is really uh, a distillation of many, many years of research, both Theoretical and empirical into these issues and that research was published in some of the best uh, peer-reviewed journals in the profession And so the sort of light-hearted style of this book should not create a a strange impression as it was just a story made up You know uh, over a course of, of a night or multiple nights and so on and so I'm not praising the book simply to deter the appearance of a grumpy Russian character in one of your new books. Well, I truly <laughs> think that, uh, that this book is really brilliant and, and a great contribution. Okay, so if you go back to explore the, the book's cover, which is also great by the way, uh, you see at the top there uh, a blurb from Steve Levitt that says that uh, WTF is like free economics on steroids. Um, So personally, I think that Pete's book is really unlike anything else I've read uh, on the issue. Uh, But if I were forced to choose sort of a most most natural predecessor uh, for WTF, I would probably go with Marvin Harris on steroids. So Marvin Harris was, of course, a famous American anthropologist who also wrote uh, popular books on the origins of culture or that he called the riddles of culture. And so in these books, he explores the origins of such social practices as, for instance, food taboos around the world, uh, or even cannibalism among the Aztecs. And the approach that he follows is kind of similar to what Pete does, in the sense that he looks at these practices from a very much rational perspective and uh, justifies their presence uh, by saying that they actually fulfill a certain role they serve a certain function, uh, and they actually make sense when you put yourself uh, under the conditions of those societies and uh, in the relevant time frame. So, I prefer calling this view that I think uh, covers both uh, Marvin Harris's approach and Pete's approach an efficient culture view, uh, by analogy with efficient institutions view uh, in uh, political economy literature. Uh, Anthropologists would call it functionalism and as I've learned earlier today, sociologists would also probably call it functionalism or structural functionalism. Uh, Pete also coined the term the law and economics of superstition that I like a lot as applied to a subset of this literature, but it doesn't matter what you call it, Uh, the key idea is that these practices, however senseless they may seem at the first glance, and the first glance is usually a glance of a westerner, Uh, nevertheless they are socially productive and these are Pete's words from the book socially productive so these social practices are all about solving a certain problem in a given environment where that problem is not being addressed through other means and I want to emphasize this caveat in a given environment uh, and Pete does it very nicely in the book it is very important to understand that this particular solution works in a given environment and this environment has to be understood broadly as including things like people's beliefs uh, existing laws um, and level of technological development and so in in those environments these cultural practices represent uh, workaround solutions and the common thread in some of the chapters in the book is that these practices often fill in for modern formal institutions that are absent. So he says that he's gonna use rational choice theory to understand these uh, practices and he calls it the incredible answering machine it's a a very powerful uh, metaphor I think Um, and what I wanted to stress here although probably it's irrelevant for this audience but my own students would definitely appreciate that is that when you say uh, that someone is rational (coughs) it doesn't for instance preclude that person from being superstitious so being superstitious is not considered irrational in fact if you are superstitious but your behavior is consistent with the superstition that you hold it is rational behavior (coughs) and again the reason why I'm saying that if I think of my students and if I tell them okay think rationally or think about the rational individual the person they would have in their mind is sort of this classical homo economicus, perfectly self-centered um, with this super analytical mind, Bayesian updating and trusting science in you know evidence and establishing all the facts and not reliant on superstitions and things like that. So that's not the view of a rational individual that is in the book. And I think it's exactly the right approach uh, to go. And in fact, uh, as Pete already mentioned in the, his example of would. Supernatural beliefs often are necessary for these practices to actually do the job. So I find it really uh, interesting <coughs> point. All right, so um, I don't really have uh, criticisms of the book. I think it's really perfect and it, for what it is trying to achieve. Um, but I have a few comments and questions um, that are related to the book, and I'm just curious about your take on those. Um, The first issue that I want to raise has to do with cultural dynamics, sort of the evolution of these social practices. And if we think in terms of rational choice theory, the incredible answering machine, the approach here is pretty straightforward. Meaning, a cultural practice will persist as long as its social benefits exceed its social costs. As simple as that. And uh, you know, any changes in the cost-benefit calculus triggered by the changes in the environment, broadly defined, may lead to the dynamics of the disappearance of that social practice. And Pete has a few really excellent examples of this obsolescence of cultural practices. For instance, as society develops a better fact-finding technologies, there is no longer need for judicial ordeals to establish guilt or innocence. Or when married women in industrial era England finally have their property rights uh, well defined and protected by law, there is no longer need for wife sales. Similarly, when the clerics have their property protected by law, there is no longer need for maledictions, you know, however uh, beautiful their texts uh, may be. And so these examples, I think, really solidify uh, Pete's point about the rational choice theory and its, its power. Uh, but less is being said in the book and I'm not saying that it was supposed to be there again it's outside the scope but I'm curious about the genesis of these practices and uh, when I say Genesis I mean the how or not why did these weird practices emerge right the why thing is very clearly explained right because they serve a useful function but how and so here I see uh, two extreme points of view And I'm wondering where you stand on this spectrum. So the first view would be that these practices were explicitly designed by really smart people. So for instance, think about vermin trials, which is one of the more exotic uh, chapters in the book. Uh, Imagine uh, a bunch of clerics gathering together in a room, sitting down, saying, okay, guys, we have a problem. Uh, The tithe payments are too low. We have to do something about it. So they take out the ink or whatever, they draw up a a game and then they solve it and say, okay, conclusion, we have to prosecute cockroaches and rats and this will solve the issue. Okay, so this is one extreme. And under this view, of course, at least some of the participants of these rituals understand what's happening, that they participate in this uh, funny looking thing, farce, but it serves a role and they're willing to do that. The other extreme uh, is, in my view, uh, sort of the position of many cultural anthropologists who explore social practices, and they would say that what we see is in fact the outcome of cumulative cultural evolution, sort of these practices being refined over generations and undergoing cultural selection, you know, like biological uh, um, organisms undergoing natural selection. Uh, and if we ask anyone today about why they are doing what they are doing, they will tell you. I don't know, or that's our (laughs) custom, that's how my parents did it. So they learned it from their parents, and their parents learned it from their parents, and nobody knows what the reason is for why they're doing it, it's just that way. And the analogy I have in mind here is, for instance, if you, uh, again, look at what anthropologists have written about it, if you look at small-scale societies around the world, say if you go to the Amazon and study um, small-scale societies that still exist there, many of these societies have very sophisticated technologies uh, for processing uh, wild and domesticated plants like cassava and you know it's a multi-stage process and again if you ask them why on earth are you doing that why can't you skip five of these 14 steps or something they will tell you i don't know it's it's how i learned to do it and that's why i'm sticking to this process but if you look at it from the scientific point of view Actually, each stage is super important because it is only this way that you can get rid of all these harmful toxins, right? But they don't know it. They don't understand the sort of, so to speak, causal reasons for why they are doing it. That it actually helps them survive and help them survive historically. So these are two extremes in my view and I wonder um, where you stand on this. Related to that, although uh, Pete goes into really fine detail about some of these practices and how different aspects actually make sense. In some cases, I guess I had some questions remaining. For instance, if you think about oracles, so uh, that's the oracles among the Azande chapter where they poison chickens um, to make decisions. Um, I'm just wondering why waste chickens when you can flip a coin with similarly, uh, similar results it seems like it's wasteful and the social cost of this practice may be reduced. Another cool thing that Pete does not emphasize a lot, so I wanted to bring it up and emphasize, is the really cool examples of what I call convergent cultural evolution here. I'm sure I'm abusing this term, if it exists, but I'm using it sort of by analogy with biological uh, convergent evolution. And what I mean here is that when you compare some of these uh, practices, They are actually very similar. Even though they belong to different times, different societies, they perform the similar function. Similarly, for the oracles among the Azan, they play the uh, same function as Magic 8 uh, and his brother to resolve some low-scale conflict. And by the way, there are other examples um, of similar divination mechanisms, for instance, uh, like the Uh, caribou hunters in uh, Labrador and Canada decide where to hunt for caribou's they have a similar procedure to decide upon that and again you know Labrador could not be any further from Central Africa and they somehow came up with very similar mechanism to resolve a similar problem Um, my next point has to do with some really costly cultural practices and the persistence of those practices Now, I should say that uh, all of Pete's uh, chapters are extremely convincing, and he shows the social benefits and functions very clearly, but as weird as it may sound, I wanna argue that Pete actually plays it safe, and WTF plays it safe, in the sense that uh, the (coughs) tour stops in the book actually, objectively speaking, are relatively low cost. Okay, so you get occasional burns with ordeals, and you have to waste resources on lawyers for rats and cockroaches, but I think it's plausible that the overall social cost you know, is below the social benefit. But we can think, obviously, of some much uh, more costly social practices. Here are some examples. And in these cases, I think it is a you know, it's a, it's a, it's a harder thing, it's harder thing to, to convince people that uh, in these examples, social benefits necessarily um, uh, outweigh social costs. Consider, for instance, the practice of food binding in China. It existed for centuries where, you know, literally um, the feet of many generations of Chinese women were mutilated. Severe damage to health was caused to countless generations of these women. Okay? that's a very serious cost now of course we can come up with the useful functions of all of these practices and some people have already done that and you know Pete has a special talent for explaining things so I have no doubt that we can come up with the benefits but it's harder here to weigh those against the costs like you know broken leg broken feet of many generations of Chinese women over centuries um, and so, in these cases, I'm curious about uh, you know, what, how we should think about these really costly cultural practices and their persistence. My final point, uh, kind of a bit related to the previous ones, has to do with what really counts as socially productive with the emphasis on socially. With some of the social practices in the book, it is pretty obvious that they seem to benefit the society as a whole, like wives says on oracles. Obviously with the usual caveat, caveat of uh, under um, given environment. But others, not so much. For instance, a monastic maledictions protect the clerical property, and that's obviously good for them. But how about actually expropriating church property and putting it perhaps to a better use. Maybe the society as a whole will be better off. Uh, Similarly, with vermin trials, again, it's clear why the church would want to do that. They uh, get more tithe payments. But do we think that these tithe payments is the most efficient use of resources for the society (coughs) as a whole? Maybe those farmers can actually spend it more efficiently if they didn't have to pay the church. And I don't have anything against the church, but it turns out that these two examples specifically seem to favor the clerics and so my broader point is whether you think it is possible that some of these social practices are actually leveraged to benefit the few or a part of society um, or whether it still falls under socially productive um, or you know whether some sort of elite capture of culture is possible and a you know, a certain slice of society may benefit disproportionately from these practices and maybe sometimes at the expense of others. So I have to say, thanks again. Excellent book. Everyone should read it. Sure. <laughs> well,
3: I'm very lucky to be going after Boris because he did most of the hard work, so... He explained what the book is about and did a really nice job of laying out some things and I think that some of what I'll say echoes some of what he did and other things will be on slightly different themes so I want to thank you all for having me here and letting me be part of this panel and I also thought the book was terrific I really liked it a lot why well one thing is the book celebrates curiosity it does that very explicitly right in the beginning of the book by posing probing why questions and that's really the heart of social science and the social scientific endeavor. It's what we should all be wanting to do, and if this book reaches out beyond our ranks, that's a good thing, because what it'll really show them is that we're not starting with the answers, we're starting with the questions. Second thing about the book, great sense of fun, that's also gonna help reach general readers. And the third thing I really like about the book is it's a love letter to rational choice theory, and I'm part of a a dwindling tribe rational choice sociologists. So a book like this that might somehow replenish our numbers is a really welcome thing. I have some other praise to the book. Like a lot of Leeson's work on subjects as diverse as mutiny, piracy, witch hunts, and so on, those are just three things that I've cited in my own work that he's done, it draws on historical evidence and puzzling cases to show why rational people make the choices they do in a given context and try to reveal how general social scientific theory can be used to explain these puzzles. The eight case studies, or exhibits as they're called in the book, exemplify this approach, a diverse set of cases in which seemingly irrational social practices are shown to solve practical problems. Like what? Like insecurity of property rights in many settings, informational asymmetries which obstruct conflict resolution, and the lack of third party enforcement in the violation of norms when there's not a state or a government or some other uh, reliable agency to do that. In all eight exhibits, Highly plausible explanations based on general economic reasoning and substantiated by historical evidence are given. And Leeson uses characters from his imagined audience. Boris mentioned quite rightly that nobody wants to end up as uh, as one of those one of those characters unless your name is Anya. Um, <laughs> nobody wants to uh, show up as one of those characters in the imagined audience in the tour of the weird. But those characters are there to pose questions and raise objections, which uh, Leeson responds to with insight, wit, and not a little bit of sarcasm. So it all adds up to a really engaging way of presenting historical research and communicating economic insights to lay audiences. And I know my students are really gonna love it. All right, but I wasn't brought all the way from um, Oxford just to praise um, Leeson's book, so I'm gonna say some things about where I think there are some uh, alternative perspectives you might consider. I have a few concerns with the book and its arguments, and there's three of them. First, the concept of institutions that's introduced here, and Boris touched on this. Um, The concept of institution that's sketched here and the ways in which the reasoning resembles, in some ways, the forgotten project of sociocultural functionalism in sociology. Secondly, the ambiguous role of rationality in the book. And third, the neglect of rival explanations, the consideration of which I think might have made the book's case for rational choice theory a bit more compelling. All right, so first, functionalism. Leeson argues that seemingly irrational social practices persist because, quote, they're often good for their societies. They make make them better off. Practices that make people um, worse off aren't likely to survive. That's page two. Well, Spencer and Durkheim couldn't have disagreed from their historical evolutionary perspective. Furthermore, such practices survive because they enhance not individual utilities, but social order, page 20. That is, the capacity of a group to coordinate and achieve collective goods. So institutions, like curses, oracles, gypsy taboos, and so on, are devised and persist because they serve socially desirable outcomes. As Leeson puts it, quote, by institutionalizing superstition, seemingly senseless practices from ordeals to oracles can incentivize desired and often socially desirable behavior, end of quote. So what's wrong with this? Nothing, except that it risks some of the same conceptual problems which dog functionalism in sociology and anthropology. What problems? One, a tendency towards teleology. That is, because a practice is found to enhance social order at time t, we might draw the inference that this explains its origins at t minus one, or some other point. That risks being ahistorical. Economic historians, historical sociologists know that the reason for the origins of an institution may not be the reason which explains its persistence. Secondly, it's not necessarily so that institutions persist because they are adaptive at the group level. Sometimes they persist because they are in the narrow interest of those in positions of privilege or power. Take labor markets. Uh, The functional assumption that inequality of reward promotes the social good by incentivizing efficiency is not always the case. Systems of racism caste, and the like may be in the material and status interests of some, but they can certainly hinder efficiency and growth for society at the aggregate level. Actually, the kind of functionism which operates in a book is akin to sociologist Robert Merton's famous distinction between the manifest and latent functions of institutions. Manifest functions refer to the intended purpose of institutions at their origins. Latent functions refer to the unintended or unforeseen effects of institutions which enhance social order and increase the adaptive capacity of a given group over time. By making this distinction, Merton hoped to make functionalism more flexible, less deterministic, and tried to explicitly show that seemingly irrational social practices, just like Leeson, often had, in fact, latent functions which were rationally adaptive. So there's a similarity in thinking in Leeson's book, but with a major difference which I applaud. Leeson, unlike Merton, is clear about the rational micro foundations argument. His reasoning is more clearly based on a methodological individualism in which outcomes at the macro level result from the aggregation of micro level decisions, which actors respond to incentives in the presence of constraints. But that doesn't mean that rational choice functionalism is off the hook. It still has to distinguish between institutional origins and persistence. And it still needs to be able to do more than post hoc application of concepts to observed outcomes. It needs to make ex ante predictions about which kinds of social institutions will be rational and which ones not. In other words, latency has to be a testable proposition to enhance the validity of it as an explanatory concept. Without this, the falsifiability of rational choice functionalism is questionable. Second, the ambiguous role of rationality in this book. Leeson's book is not concerned with straightforward issues of efficiency or growth, the kind of things that usually preoccupy economists. He wants to apply rational choice theory to a wider range of issues, including conflict resolution, exchange in the absence of property rights, and third party enforcement. Again and again, Leeson argues that rationality at the group level depends on the non-rationality of people at the individual level, i.e., in superstitious beliefs and uh, confidence in supernatural powers. But this begs the question, who then is being rational, as Boris alluded to? Um, Where's all the intentionality? Is it, the design of the, is it by the designers of the institution? Is it the functionaries or priests who rationally exploit the non-rationality of the naive believers? Or does rationality simply spontaneously emerge from these beliefs in the course of social exchange? I'd like some more resolution of this issue. Is rational intent necessary to produce objectively rational outcomes at the group level? Is this something akin to Max Weber's value rationality at work? That is, that non-rational beliefs or commitments influence a set of goals, which are nevertheless pursued in instrumental fashion, with attention to costs and benefits of different courses of action, which will lead to the desired outcomes at the group level. I'll conclude with a note about rival explanations. Leeson makes compelling arguments throughout the book, but he doesn't consider rival explanations. His audience in the tour of the weird pose questions and objections, but alternative explanations are not really explored. That, I think, was a little bit of a missed opportunity in the book. The case for rational choice theory as the incredible answering machine is made stronger by showing that it does a better job of explaining its puzzles, the puzzles it confronts than would other plausible theories, such as those which would insist on group conflict or power or distribution, or on cultural explanations based on social classification, like the purity, pollution, dichotomy, and anthropology. All right, with these caveats and concerns aside, I want to conclude by saying that this is a really compelling book. And like Boris, I encourage you all to read it, not just because it's insightful, it's a
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast.